0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendrick Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. Our topic today is the virgin birth and alleged parallels to it. Our guests are uh, Mary Jo Sharp, who is Assistant Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University, and she is with us via technology by Skype from her home Mm -hmm. in Houston, Texas. Hey. So good Hello. to see you, and I take it you survived the hurricane in good shape, and uh, are are basking in the glory of Astros victory. So, uh,
2: <laughs> exactly, that's totally right. We survived, and now we're basking.
1: And, and 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 she's just back from a trip from Israel. I mean, your life is full, busy, and. And no apologies, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I like that way of saying it. That really frames it well.
1: There you go. And then uh, our other guest is Mikel Del Rosario, who um, not only works with uh, with me at the Hendricks Center as a project manager for the Table podcast and is pursuing his Ph.D. here at Dallas, but also is adjunct professor of apologetics and world religions at William Jessup, which is in uh, is it Rockland, yeah, California? Yeah, Rockland, huh? That's a suburb of Sacramento, California. So, we, you know, we got the middle and the, and the west coast of the country represented. I mean, we're, we've got good coverage here. So, um, our goal today is to kind of walk through what happens when people climb parallels. And we're going to look at the virgin birth in particular as we think about this and, uh, Mary Jo has worked on this in general as an apologist. So let's talk a little bit about how does a, If I remember correctly, are you from Oklahoma originally? Am I am I getting that right, or where are you from originally?
2: Originally, I'm from Portland, Oregon.
1: Portland, Oregon. Okay, I got that wrong. So, uh, but I
2: lived in Oklahoma. You're close.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and so, how does an Oregonian gal like you end up in apologetics?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that is interesting because there was no point in my childhood where I thought, hey, I'm gonna be a Christian apologist. <laughs> that's right <laughs> or even a Christian. <laughs> I don't think I've
1: ever asked a six-year- old girl that question and gotten that answer. so <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I grew up without a church background. Um, I grew up generally just atheist, but I wouldn't have known to call myself that um, because I was just raised outside of church and raised on a lot of Carl Sagan and nature shows and science shows. Um, I became a believer in college, uh, so I reversed the stat there. I'm the opposite of the statistic. <laughs> you know, I went off to college and became a believer. Uh, and after being a, in the church for several years, I began to notice that the people who professed that Christianity um, was true uh, and would you know say the Bible was true didn't seem to much care to um, adhere to the teachings of the Bible. And I, and I don't just mean they messed up here and there. I mean it was continual. And I I saw things in the church that were uh, concerning to me, the, the way they behaved and treated one another. And so I began to question my belief in God. I would say that it, it probably began as an emotional doubt due to what I was seeing in the church and the hypocrisy. And that led me to intellectual questioning, which led me to wonder why I believed in God. Why did I say that I had you know, salvation in Jesus Christ? And why did I believe in the Bible um, as true? And so then I started looking for answers to my own questions. And I didn't mean to end up in apologetics. That's kind of just what happened, as a natural outworking of my own investigation.
1: And how long have you been at HBU now?
2: I've been. Oh, this is my sixth year at
1: HBU. Okay, so you've been there for a while now. Yeah. uh, So let's talk about your interest in apologetics, and in particular, uh, this issue. You've done some work in in. The Mithra and Horus backdrops that people claim with reference to the virgin birth. But before we look at those and talk about those in some detail, you know, talking about figures like Osiris and Mithra, uh, I want to talk a little bit about parallels in general. So talk to us about, you hear a claim that's made like this, and someone says, oh, well, you know, the virgin birth of Jesus is just a mirror of something that was came long before something like that um, how do you investigate something like that what 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 is your advice to people in terms of the approach
2: what a great question I think um, people don't at first they don't think to investigate it mm-hmm. <laughs> that's like you should want to investigate if you hear a claim like this rather than say wow that sounds good I'll go with that mm-hmm. and that's more of what I hear um, when I when I re- or when I see this being this argument made, it's not really that people have deeply investigated it. It's more like, that sounds right. I think I'll go with that.
0: <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs>
2: haven't really looked at both sides. So I'm, I'm really glad you're asking this question. I give sort of a three-point, here's how to go about investigating it. And the first thing I tell people is you need to get the whole story. So if somebody's telling you, you know, like you've watched Bill Maher on The View, and he's saying the story of Jesus is an exact copy of Horace, which is verbatim what he said. And that that bothers you, then you need to get the whole story first. So you actually need to go in and read the stories uh, to see what what is being said in the story of Horus and Osiris and Mithras and Dionysus. Like, what do their stories actually say? And that's really important because I don't think a lot of people do that. They they listen to guys like Bill Maher or maybe maybe even James uh, the the Power of Myth. Um, they're going back to Campbell's work. Um, maybe maybe they're relying on some of these internet sites as well. So. The whole story actually you read the story. You mean HBO for yourself.
1: and the internet aren't the source of truth?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got I a good one for you on that. I was doing, I'm writing for the Gospel Project, and I'm looking up, I'm trying to find a quote from G.K. Chesterton on a material I'm writing, and uh, so I find this quote online, and it's something I want to use. And here's just how bad it is out there, guys. I found hundreds of pages that were using this quote that G.K. Chesterton never said. Uh-huh. Tons of Internet memes and the hundreds of pages. The myth of the historical G.K. Chesterton.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah,
2: I think the same thing happens with these pagan myths. So people mm-hmm. go online, they find you know the pagan origins of the Christ myth theory website, and they're like, "Well, I mean, there it is. This guy's done some research, so it must be true." Or they find the Zeitgeist, of the movie. That's mm-hmm. right.
1: You put the graphics up next to it and just line it up and say, "Well, that must be true because that's that what it says." I don't know if you're aware of this, Mary Joe, but there's a site, uh, 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 actually, it's a center in uh, Sydney, Australia called the Center for Public Christianity. John Dixon runs it. And uh, they have done a brilliant five minute piece on Zeitgeist, uh, which in which they interview Chris Forbes, who teaches ancient history at Macquarie University. and somehow, uh, when you hear it with uh, with some type of form of British Commonwealth accent it, it sounds more true and so, so he does this refutation of zeitgeist in about five minutes and just walks through all the problems with it it's a it, if you need a visual support for for this kind of a point it really is a good Resource place to find things. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's.
2: Um, I have seen that. It's been a while, but I've seen it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, you want to. You want to get the whole story. I'm sure he refers to this, but um. And then the second point was take the parallels head to head. Actually, see if the parallels are parallel.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and we'll see that with the virgin birth here when we look at that. But um, sometimes the the similarities that are being compared are so vague in the um and how they're similar mm-hmm. that you could actually use the same reasoning to compare anything to anything else. That's mm-hmm. right. So you, got, you got to be careful. Like
1: of there that. was a birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to have fun with this as much fun as we're having, but it but there there is it is amazing when you of course when you don't look anything up and you don't investigate, you don't go to the primary source and take a look at it in some way to see what the wording actually is and that kind of thing. Then your your tendency is just to assume that what you're being told is true. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, and you know we, we know a lot of what we know based on authorities. I'm not going to say that you know, boy, you have to look up every single little fact in your life because then you would never get out of bed in the morning, right? You couldn't if you didn't rely on some kind of authority for some it's for areas in your life. We do rely on them, but if this is something that you're claiming as absolutely true, it's the reason you don't believe in God, um, or if it's shaking your faith. Then you need to look it up. That's the responsible thing to do. So take those parallels head to head, and then the final point, Daryl, was to set everything in context. Mm-hmm. So did you know if, you, if a term like virgin or resurrection is being thrown around in another for another religion or pagan religion, especially, does it mean the same thing in context as it meant to the first-century Christian believers? Uh, so that's an important thing too. And then how does it outwork into their culture? Um, that's another thing, because the, the, between the Mibs and uh, the, the um, in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, there's very different outworkings of these things, like on the nature of reality and the nature of man and the nature of God. So you need to actually set everything in context.
1: Okay, well, that's a nice overview. So so let's do it. Let's dive into <laughs> the investigation and and take a look. And uh, let's start with, with Osiris, okay, and the idea that uh, – that the virgin birth goes all the way back in time. To use the words of that great theologian, Chris Berman, back, 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 back to the Egyptians. And uh, tell us a little bit about this claim first of all, and then let's put them head to head.
2: Okay. So you're, the claim that we're handling is that um, th- that many gods have virgin births, and so you can find them if you just go back and you look at all these different gods. So. We're, what I've done is I've actually gone back and looked at what is being said about Osiris. How can we make this claim that he has a virgin birth? And so the virgin birth of Osiris. What I've done is I've gone and read uh, the various secondary sources, then went into and read uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead and um, the Pyramid texts where we get the story of Osiris. So and those are um, when I say I've read them. Those are translations because this is coming out of hieroglyphics. Right. Yeah, so I wasn't reading hieroglyphics. Okay. But uh, so what we find is that Osiris is actually, he's the offspring of an affair between two gods. He's an offspring of the um, earth god and the sky goddess, the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nut. And in fact, the affair causes such a problem for um, the sky goddess and her husband that her husband denies her the day's in the year to give birth to her children, she has like seven of them, and Osiris is one of them. Isis is one of them as well, and uh, so it ends up that another god, Thoth, has to actually play checkers with the moon. I'm not sure how this comes into <laughs> relating to Jesus, but he plays checkers like a game with the moon in order to win more days of the year for um, for the sky goddess to have her children, and so therefore she's able to have Osiris.
1: Now is Osiris her firstborn, and if she's got a husband, is this another man that she's having a relationship, with? and is this even a virgin birth?
2: Right. So there. Yeah, I mean, we can we can just start getting down into all the details. But if we look at it from that, like sort of a thirty thousand foot level, these are all gods, uh-huh. right? Mm-hmm. Everything going on here is in the realm of the gods. This is not a human being being born on the earth. By a female who'd never had sex with uh, a male before. There's nothing even similar to that, uh, and it gets even more interesting when we find out about Horace's birth because Osiris and Isis, um, we find in Horace's birth, are having sex in their mother's womb uh, while they're still god fetuses. So it gets even more fantastic.
1: Oh wow! So so it's. I guess the conclusion is when we. Look at the detail on this one. Not close. <laughs> <laughs> <You're right.
2: laughs> Not close. Yeah. And that's that's what's shocking to me is um, when I've talked to uh, people who are atheists who hold to this. They when they actually start reading the stories um, or reading like Plutarch's record of um, the mysteries of Isis of on Isis and Osiris, then uh, they start to get. Like
1: wow i I've never I've never heard this. Yeah, uh, yeah, a, right. There's a little mantra I like to give to students about the Bible, but I think it's also true here, and it is nothing beats observing the text. Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> and, and and so I think that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here. I tell people that sometimes the best refutation on some of this stuff is to just look it up. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and and you read it, and you go how was that even, how was that comparison even even begun to be made it was because people were were fishing for a loose some kind of loose comparison mm-hmm.
2: yeah and that's what we see in history is that I mean, if you go back and you seriously study religious syncretism with regard to the pagan myths and mysteries, and then, like, the world's monotheistic religions, you're going to start finding that um, this was considered a dead argument in academia in the Mm -hmm. past century. Like, academics were putting their careers on the line if they were going to purport this, if they're going to continue to promote it. And that's because it was such an egregiously made argument. It was very intellectually dishonest, where you're like, putting up a list of things like we see in Zeitgeist, okay, I'm gonna find the mythic hero and so I'm gonna make this list of items and then I'm gonna go find that in every religion, in every belief system that has ever been. Well that when you do something like that, you're you're putting yourself in a position of really stretching the truth and really stretching the context of what these things are, including like definitionally stretching the truth of virgin.
0: Yeah.
1: Know. When when Chris Forbes talks about this, he, he says, you know, um These are parallel. This is the story of Jesus because it is the story of Jesus. It's just not the story of the God that is being parallel, that's said to be in parallel. And so, um, Mm uh, so it works that way. Okay. So that's Horus. So that's one down. Let's go to Mithra and what's going on there. What uh, and this is birth from the rock is the, the note that I have here. So that just sounds very
2: fascinating. Yeah, this is—he's my favorite one uh, <laughs> because. So what you see if you watch Zeitgeist is you'll see a, a, a BC dating on Mithras, and then you'll see all of these comparisons to Jesus, including a
0: virgin birth.
2: Well, the problem is that um, what what Peter Joseph is doing is he's using a god from an ancient time from Persia. He's using either Mitra or Mithra and comparing and using that story of those one of those two gods, and comparing it to the Roman god Mithras, mm-hmm. who was in existence at the time, uh, in existence, meaning his story was in existence at the time of Jesus. And so that in itself is intellectually dishonest, uh, to use that background in order to date Mithras. But Mithras is a Roman god, um, and he, his story, if you're going to compare the one that was around the time of Jesus, He's actually a god of the underworld. He he jumps out of the underworld with a dagger in one hand and a torch in the other. The torch is used to guide his way to our you know to the upper realm here, um, and the dagger was used to subdue all the creatures of the earth once he got out of that rock. But he, he his birth is actually he jumps out of a rock on the banks. It's side actually of the a door. A sacred <laughs> <ginger>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the yeah, rock.
2: You got a virgin rock
1: there. <laughs> <laughs> well, i i guess I guess you can put those two words next to one another. I just don't know if it works. Anyway, so um, okay, so so that one's also not close. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to turn our attention now to some Greco-Roman examples, and for these, I'm going to talk to Mikkel um, and. This conversation, Mikkel and I are going to have goes back to a project that he did a couple of years ago in a in a class that we uh, that he took with me on Jesus and the media. And so he studied these uh, texts and then presented them visually in a in a video that uh, he's made available. And so let's talk about let's let's do it let's do it in the order for, let's do the Plutarch text first and then we'll do Suetonius. We've got a text from Plutarch's Lives, and it involves Alexander the Great, who um, was born in uh, 336 B.C., so um, we're well before the time of Christ, but Plutarch's writing Mm -hmm. about four centuries later, and uh, let's talk about this supposed parallel to the birth of Jesus, and we're going to take Mary Jo's advice and just Look at the text and see what's, you know, nothing beats observing the text, nothing, nothing at all. So, what is this text telling us? Tell us about Alexander the Great's virgin birth. Yeah, so when we think about these things, we think,
3: what are the similarities? And it turns out that all things are similar if you ignore the differences, Uh right? Okay. So, let's take a look at this text. I'm going to take some time to read this section out of Plutarch. And just think about the the story of Jesus um, that we hear at Christmas time, and what the Virgin Birth is, and then compare it to this in your mind. Here we go. So Plutarch's right. Plutarch writes, "It is said that his father Philip, we're talking about Alexander here, fell in love with Olympias, Alexander's mother, at the time when they were both initiated into the mysteries of Samothrace. He was then a young man, and she an orphan, and after obtaining the consent of her brother." Aribas, Philip betrothed himself to her. On the night before the marriage was consummated, the bride dreamed that there was a crash of thunder and uh, her womb was struck by a thunderbolt and that there was followed a blinding flash from which a great sheet of flame blazed up and spread far and wide before it finally died away. Then, sometime after their marriage, Philip saw himself in a dream in the act of sealing up his wife's womb and... Upon the seal he had used, there was engraved, so it seemed to him, the figure of a lion. The soothsayers, the soothsayers treated this dream with suspicion, since it seemed to suggest that Philip needed to keep a closer watch on his wife. The only exception was um, Aristander of Telemus, who declared that the woman must be pregnant since men do not seal up what is empty, and that she would bring forth a son whose nature would be bold and lion-like. At another time, a serpent, a serpent was seen stretched out at Olympia's side as she slept. And it was this more than anything else, we're told, which weakened Philip's passion and cooled his affection for her so that from that time on, uh, from that time on, he seldom came to sleep with her. The reason for this may either have been that he was afraid that she would cast some evil spell or charm upon him or else that. Uh, that he recoiled from her embrace because he believed that she was the consort of some higher being. That's it. That is the full text. Okay. So, um, so what do we have? We have nothing at all that looks like Jesus here. <laughs> we have this this serpent uh, lying by her side, mm-hmm. and there's kind of this serpent theme actually that goes into some of these Greco-Roman alleged parallels, but um, here when it comes to Alexander. Um, we don't have any kind of um, non-sex because I think this implies some kind of a sexual relationship. If he thought that she was the consort, mm-hmm. um, but as well, it's it's an interpretation of a dream. So it's it's very unclear that that um, she was not um, engaged in any kind of sexual activity. And the at thing all.
1: that strikes me about these stories is is that they're very, if I can say it, very detailed about the moment of mm-hmm. conception. They um, so you've got. The detail here of uh, the serpent scene stretched out at Olympus's side as she slept, and uh, this weakened Philip's passion. now that part I get. and uh, so um, so so we're dealing here with with this portrait in detail of how this act actually took place. Mm-hmm. Um, so the closest thing that we have is we have Alexander's birth being attributed to some type of transcendent activity. Sure, um, but, generally speaking. But, right? that, but that's it. Mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm.
3: Which is very different than the very, very short mention in the Bible of the Holy Spirit will uh, come upon you uh, right. and that's it. Very simple.
1: Exactly. And there's no detail given to this uh, at all in the, in, the, in the New Testament when we're talking about Jesus' birth.
0: Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Okay, and then the second example comes from Suetonius or mm-hmm. as W. A. Criswell used to pronounce it, Suetonius. <laughs> so, um, and uh, Roman historian writing um, uh, about 180 years after Augustus was born writing in the early 2nd century he wrote a work called the 12 Caesars mm-hmm. and in this he has a section on Augustus who's probably the most prominent of the of the Caesars perhaps except for maybe um, could perhaps make a case for Julius Caesar uh, being more important, but certainly one of the more prominent um, emperors. And it talks about his birth. What does this What does this story look like? This story looks like his
3: mom was worshiping Apollo at this very, very late night um, worship service. She falls asleep, and here's what happens. Let's take a look at the story. Okay, Augustus's mother, Atia. With certain married women friends, once attended a solemn midnight service at the Temple of Apollo, where she had her litter set down. And presently, she fell asleep, probably because it was very, very late, as, as the others also did. Suddenly, a serpent glided up, entered her, it says, and then glided away again. On awakening, she purified herself, as if after intimacy with her husband. An irremovable colored mark in the shape of a serpent which then appeared on her body, made her ashamed to visit the public baths anymore. And the birth of Augustus nine months later suggested a divine paternity. And so, here we see again this snake metaphor. I, mm-hmm. I don't know you know, where this comes from, but there we have this parallel here mm-hmm. where um, uh, a snake glides up into her, it says. And so, besides that, um, Augustus had an older sister, Octavia. And so, no virgin in this case Mm -hmm. and we have again sexual contact with uh, a snake or you know some kind of supernatural uh, you know power a god um, in this form again all things are similar if you ignore the differences
1: so she's um, she's married at this time yeah and you mentioned that uh, he has a sister so this is this is not a virgin birth. No, it's just again, it's just simply a divine claim for a divine origin, and that's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, again, I mean, these two examples are slightly closer than the first two examples that we had, but they're not quite, um, they're not quite up to where we were on uh, uh, on on what the virgin birth is about. Mm-hmm. And so, and so we learn that, that, again, nothing beats observing the text. You want to go to the originals and see what they say. And what you find is these claims for parallels actually are, uh, are not very persuasive in terms of, of what, they, what they show. Uh, Mary Jo, you have any observations if you listen to these two examples from the Greco-Roman world? And we've got to be a little bit quick because we're coming up to a break. <coughs>
2: yeah I again, I would say, you know we just generalities, but um first of all, you really do need to take those parallels head to head, right? Um you don't see the the kinds of things that are being said in our society is that um this is an exact copy of the story of Jesus. And when you read this, when you actually read them, like <laughs> I'm glad Mikha read them. You, you start to say, like, well, if if you've ever read Luke two, if you've <laughs> ever read the story of Jesus' birth, you say, well, like, I don't, I don't see the connection here. I mean, I I'm not even seeing the same story, and that's what happens over and over with these: is that even on the basis level of just reading the stories, not getting into their philosophical worldviews, not getting into the theology of what this means for mankind, just on the base level, you see, see, they're not the same at all.
1: Yep, we've looked at. Horus and the study of Osiris and we've looked at uh, Mithra Mithras connections, we've looked at the claims associated with um, Alexander the Great and Plutarch and with Caesar Augustus and Suetonius and we have one more example that sometimes is raised and this is the example tied to claims related to to Buddha and, and, uh, and Buddhist background. So, uh, Mikhail, uh tell us about this one. Yeah, this one is not very well known. Um,
3: a few people will uh, talk about Buddha, but not really know where it comes from. So Buddha lived many, many different lives. The story goes. And one day he remembered these lives. This is in the Pali Canon, about two hundred BC. This was in place. And the story goes, one of his previous lives, this is how he was born. There were these two beings who are kind of higher um, higher than humans. Mm-hmm. and they're from this Brahmin world. They came down, boy, girl, and they became hermits. They got married. They became hermits. Well, one day, the guy touched the lady's stomach, and that's how uh, Buddha was conceived in this case. Now, perhaps a virgin birth because there was no sex mentioned in the text. But these aren't even human beings. Mm-hmm. They're not human beings, and um, the the parallel is got to be something that the that. Mark would know that Luke would know. There's very, very small chance that uh, any of the. I don't think they had frequent flyer miles. <laughs> no. <laughs> for <India or> something. <laughs> so the unlikelihood that this would influence uh, the Christian story actually comes into play as well. So mm-hmm. that's another thing to think about when we look at these parallels. Even if you get something that looks kind of close, maybe you go,
1: "Well, yeah, but how would they possibly have have been influenced by this story?" Okay, so we so we've gone through these examples and clearly what we're seeing is um, that this doesn't explain the background of, of the virgin birth. I mean the closest you can get to any kind of claim is the idea that somehow a great figure might have some element of transcendent connection uh, and that's about as close as you can get. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's turn our attention to the virgin birth itself. Now what's interesting about this is is that the virgin birth is is not? I think it's fair to say is not a big deal in the New Testament. By which I mean there aren't tons of passages that discuss this. There mm-hmm. are, you can count them on one hand. Uh, so, um, so that's the first observation to make: is that it's not it's not something that's in lots of texts. It's alluded to directly in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, with Matthew explicitly tying it to the prediction of Isaiah 714 and the language of Luke alluding to such texts but not actually uh, citing them. So we've got those two examples that are the most uh, prominent idea of, uh, of the virgin birth and articulation. But, uh, Mikkel, what stands out about the way in which that description is given Given the parallels that we've gone through, in other words, what's the biggest difference that you see? Um, I mean, besides the fact that many of the parallels involve relationships between gods and mm-hmm. not a God human relationship, what's the other thing uh, that stands out to you as you think about the differences? Well, it, they're, one, they're very different in terms
3: of the simplicity with which um, we see it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's just. The the Lord just does it and there's no explanation of the mechanism with how that worked. Mm-hmm. There are no fantastical elements like snakes uh-huh. coming up or, um, uh, you know, visions of, of thunder hitting someone's womb. But this raised suspicions um, in terms of, of, of Jesus. So even though we don't see, um, we don't see it specifically mentioned, the virgin birth mentioned. Um, In all of the Gospels, we have allusions like in John eight, where these people were telling Jesus, "We weren't born of immorality." Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we we all know how Joseph isn't your real bio dad. You know, Uh Um, or Mark six, where he's called the son of Mary, where normally um, you would you
1: wouldn't mention the mom, you'd mention the dad. Mm -hmm. So, so the point here is is that we have a couple of texts that mention the virgin birth directly, and then we have a couple of texts that suggest that something. Uh, is is going on mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. and it wasn't
3: emphasized like you said, and mm-hmm. I think that if they would make it up to make christian Christianity seem more um, more positive or mm-hmm. attract more people, they would talk about it more. Mm-hmm. And so why wouldn't
1: they talk it up if they made it up? yeah, so it's yeah. Al- so it's almost uh, I mean it's almost like thrown into the uh, from the side uh, in, in in that sense mm-hmm. um yeah. Yeah. So the other the other places where we suggest that something is going on is a text like um, Philippians two six and seven, mm-hmm. where we get the idea of um, even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped onto or held mm-hmm. onto, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a slave, which pictures Jesus as someone sent from heaven. John one does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then eventually the Word became flesh. Mm-hmm. So you've got these indicators in the text that say that we're dealing with a divine human figure whose origins predate his humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these all suggest a virgin birth, but as we've noted, there are no snakes. Mm-hmm. There are no dreams at the night, no mm-hmm. nightmares. Uh, no husband uh, distancing himself from a wife accordingly you know uh, none, of, none of that that we saw in these in mm-hmm. these parallels and there's the yeah.
3: polytheistic aspect too where with these gods or demi-gods you have people who are occupy kind of the lower realm on the totem pole uh-huh. nobody thought caesar augustus was eye maker
1: of heaven and earth right right and we always talk about the fact that when you deify an emperor he kind of goes to the bottom of the pantheon, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, Jesus is portrayed as being at the top of the heap. I mean, he's sitting at the right hand of the fathers, the way the portrayal is. So mm-hmm. you're on the other end of the, whatever the rank, whatever the Associated Press rankings are of the gods, um, you're you're not in the section that says, and these ones receive votes as well. You know? right. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, so, uh, so Mary Jo, how do you, how do you think about this uh, in, the, in the issue of the virgin birth? The thing that always strikes me about, about this story is what it is that Mary had to go through to be a part of this event. And when she submits to the Father, let it be to me according to your will, um, what she take on?
2: <laughs> wow that's a question <laughs> i mean she took on being the mother of god right right <laughs> it's, it's um i i mean i'll comment on that but i for me what's amazing about this story is how very human this whole story is like mikhail was just pointing out that it's not real fantastic i mean you even have joseph um, who doesn't want to put it? You know, Luke 1, 18 through twenty one talks about how Joseph, just being a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce Mary quietly. Yeah, like he, and Matthew one, yep. guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, in Matthew, right? yeah, in Matthew one, uh, that's right. I mean, he's sitting there. I mean, and I, you know, in the back of my mind, I imagine these conversations that that Mary would have had. I mean, you know, like uh, imagine her having this conversation with Joseph. I'm pregnant, right. right? Okay, that's part 1. Right. Okay. Yeah, this would so, be
2: very hard. <laughs> that's
1: right. The next question would be all right, well how did that happen? Right? Yeah. And and then her answer is well, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, because these aren't, these. you know, they're ancient people, but they're not, like, foolish. Right. They don't just jump at any chance to say, oh, yeah, sure, great. This, you know, in our current day and age, we seem to think of the ancients as being willing to ascribe deity at, you know, at a drop of a, a dime or whatever. Uh-huh. Of course, it wouldn't have been a dime. But, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> drop of a denarius. Uh-huh. Come on now, get your, get your currency right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so. We, we tend to think that way and actually what Mary had to go through, she knew that this is not this is not something that I mean you could tell from Joseph's response, this is not something that happens. Mm-hmm. They right. understand that this is not normal um, and they don't have examples of this just running through their history. Otherwise Joseph Wouldn't have been so like, well, I'm just going to put her down or put her down, divorce her Mm -hmm. quietly, Uh you know, so it's not to shame her. He didn't want to shame her, um, but let her take the shame on herself. So um, he had to be told he had to have supernatural intervention to be told to not fear, to not fear Mm -hmm. taking Mary as his wife. Yeah. And that I mean, to me, that's very this is a very awkward situation. Right. It's a very human, awkward situation
1: situation yeah I, 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 uh, there was a movie that came out I don't know it's been a couple of decades now that was on the birth of Jesus and they actually portray the moment when Mary and Joseph tell Mary's parents what's happening okay imagine that conversation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know and so and, and, and even though you know we're moving outside the text there is there is th- this kind of reality that comes with what we're talking about here. Um, I mean, because there would have been uh, – and, and it's clear that, as as Mikkel suggested earlier, there was something, to use your word, awkward about what was going on because of the um, alternative stories that emerged about uh, where Mary got pregnant from, mm-hmm. et cetera, that are a part of the tradition that we see popping up uh, not just in John's gospel but also in the traditions that are associated with the polemics tied to who Jesus is etc. Yeah. So this is this this is handled in in our ancient materials in a way that shows that it, that it it was so unprecedented it was hard to deal with.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, a very important point that a lot. We tend to miss like new atheists when they're blowing this off, and when people are just sort of blowing off the virgin birth, they tend to miss the point that it wasn't easy for them either. I mean, mm-hmm. read the text. Mm-hmm. This is not. It's not some fantastic, you know, serpent lady. Oh yeah, story. it's God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I, it, but it's very important, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it, it, the virgin birth helps us understand the full humanity of jesus as well as the full deity that's right Um, and that's a very important Mm -hmm. point about this particular individual in human history that he's not just a god baby who's another god who incarnate you know he's a god in that um you know, like other gods. he he existed like a god. Um, I'm j- I don't even know what I'm saying right at the moment. Um, he he is not something that we find in Hinduism, in Buddhism, mm-hmm. where he's just like an avatar. Yeah, right. right. This is a very different thing. This is a full human and a full God man. And he's the only one we find in history like that. That's why it's important to um take these parallels head to head and to actually look at what, what is the implication of who is this being once he's born? Is he a, just another god, um, a product of the gods? So you need to look at that because there. Are, then I hope you guys are going to discuss this. There are implications for the fully God, fully man. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. we're,
1: we're headed there. Let me make one other point that I think uh, is a is a is an issue that comes up because of the problems people have with this story, and that is we end up spending so much time discussing and defending in some cases the virgin birth when we tell the birth story sometimes that we actually miss the points of the narratives that tell that story. Mm -hmm. And so in Luke for example the thrust of the infancy material is is that God keeps his word. Mm -hmm. He's made his commitments, he's announced what he's going to do, the Old Testament has laid out what God's going to do, he's going to keep his word and then you watch people be submissive to and trust the word of God. Um, this is true. Um, Zechariah learns this through what I call a long quiet time that he gets to have <laughs> because he didn't believe God to begin with, and then one. and then Mary learns. Uh, Mary accepts it from the moment she hears it and says, "Let it to be uh, uh, to me according to your word, for nothing is impossible with God." Is what the is, is the point that the angel makes. So we're supposed to trust God's word. On Matthew's side, we get. We get, again, this emphasis on the fact this was designed. You know, God showed that this was coming, and in the citation of Isaiah chapter 7, it becomes part of a of a whole patchwork of texts that tell us the things that happened in the birth and in the infancy of Jesus were things that were part of a divine program that he was setting forth. And again, his word can show that this is true, so I tell people when you tell the Christmas story. You aren't just telling the story of the birth of Jesus that happened, you know, at that time. It's part of a program and a plan that God laid out before that time, in which He tipped His hand, saying, "This was going to happen." hmm
2: Yeah, yeah, and it shows, you know, the Virgin Birth shows us um, an important point about it that you need also to make as a comparison for context is that the Virgin Birth shows us that humanity needs a Savior. Um, that humanity cannot produce itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right that's that's an important point. I think people miss of the virgin birth because they just get wrapped up in you know the supernatural aspect they don't they don't think about well, what is the implication of the supernatural aspect? well, it's that we can't produce someone you know from ourselves that can save us from ourselves. We mm-hmm. need someone from outside of us mm-hmm. and uh, it's fascinating all the um, the comic book stories of heroes that come from outside of us in order to save us, right? Uh-huh. That we seem to understand that story, um, the great story of mankind, that we're the cause of the problem, and so we need a savior.
1: And so uh, that becomes an important, important uh, part of the of the theme that's raised, along with the idea of just the whole background of, of what this represents. Uh, I like I, I like to tell people that. If I was in the marketing meeting, you know, before the foundation of the world, when God was planning this, and He brings together, you know, His angels to plan. Okay, we're going to save the world, and this is how we're going to do it. And and you're in the marketing meeting, and people get to propose. Well, this is how it ought to happen, you know. And and I sit there, and I I've got I, I'm God of the universe. Uh, I'm gonna send I'm gonna send someone from from our realm into the realm of humanity to deliver them. Um, I don't think I would have picked the way that it happened. You know, uh, there would have been a little bit of fanfare, <laughs> would have been in a capital city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there, there would have been a huge entourage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what we get instead is this very humble mm-hmm. uh, birth tucked away in a little bitty town. I mean, Bethlehem is, you know, you, you go to Israel today, you'll miss it, I mean, if you're, if, if, if you're not careful, and it's much bigger now than it was then, and uh, um, given the size of the Greco-Roman world, we're tucked away in a corner of Israel, uh, and everything about it is this humble um, entry into humanity. Yeah. And the virgin, yeah. and the virgin birth is a part of that story.
2: Yeah. It's so and it's so great. It just you know, it really shows us the virgin birth really shows us um, that that full humanity um is evident from the fact of that he was born as a human, mm-hmm. right? He was born like mm-hmm. one of us. Even if it wasn't this, you know, tiny tucked away town, he was born like one of us. He has a story like us. Um, but then you have that conception um, of his from from God, and so that it, so he is that full deity as well. And I, I love what you're bringing up about it being just you know right there in Israel. Of course, Israel was a connector between world powers, right? Uh-huh. You know, that's where if the story is going to take place of God, the savior of mankind coming into the world, that's actually a pretty it's good
1: passageway. Yep, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: because they're going to encounter it. That's a, there's trade going on, all sorts of stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, I think people need to really—they need the virgin birth brought to reality, Mm -hmm. um, brought to—and they need to really deal with it as to why would God come into the world through virgin birth? What's the whole point of it? Um, Rather than just dismiss it as like some fantastic story, which as Mikkel's been showing and as you've been showing and I've been showing, it's not really that fantastic. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're yeah. talking about the Creator God who brings life. Anyway, I, you know, there are people who say if God can do a resurrection, Jesus's miracles are pretty straightforward, and yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's it's that kind of an emphasis. And and I do think it's interesting that in the midst of this, you get this birth, but you don't get it in a castle.
0: No, You know, yeah. it's not
1: it's not the it's not the way most kings are born. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't even get it in a home in a normal sense. You get it in a manger in an animal trough. You know, everything about it shows the way God enters into humanity at the most basic levels. Right. And, and with a simplicity and a directness mm-hmm. that's that's important. Uh, Mikhail, what do you what what else do you think is important to note about the way in which the virgin birth story is told and the birth story is told in general?
3: Well like as you were mentioning, if uh, God can raise Jesus from the dead, then the virgin
1: birth is no big deal.
3: Uh-huh. I think if God can create the entire universe, uh-huh. then the virgin birth is clearly possible as well. I think a lot of it hinges on your uh, belief in in the ability of God to inter to act in the world Mm -hmm. if god is real if jesus came um, from heaven to earth and the virgin birth is very very plausible um with with the deity and the humanity you know if joseph was the dad if some other guy a roman soldier somebody was the dad then how could jesus be the god man Mm -hmm. on the humans on the human side um, like saint anselm wrote in curdeus homo that why did god have to become a man that as god he can he can pay that infinite debt that we owe in a finite period of time. Mm-hmm. but As man, he can really stand in our place, mm-hmm. and so that's why I believe deity and humanity have to be um, in place for the Christian um, story to work.
1: So, yeah. so uh, I mean, there there's so many different ways to think about how to put this all together. Uh, it, it strikes me as well that that in thinking about that aspect of things, the um, the phrase in Philippians to me that I think is so powerful is he did not regard equality with God as something to be clinged on to be grasped, you know, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave, uh, you know, becoming like other men and sharing in their human nature. So the whole initiative that God mm-hmm. t- undertakes to make this happen uh, – wi- Majesty coming to earth without majesty, if I can say it that way, yeah. you know, is a striking part of the story it seems to me. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's the, uh, instead of using the word fantastic, that's the wondrous part um, mm-hmm. of the story is that God, the God who created the universe, cares so much for his creation, which he called good in Genesis 1. That he values it so much that he would do this as far as redeeming it. He's doing something to redeem it because it is good, mm-hmm. because he values it. And what what a wonderful way to look at the Virgin Birth as as having uh, in part of Jesus's story, at the front end of Jesus's story, there um, with us as a way of saying, look how much God values His creation. Uh, that he himself would step into it as the ultimate sacrifice for the purpose of redeeming us so that we can have relationship with him.
1: You know, and it's interesting because in a lot of religions the mm-hmm. tendency is is to make God so great or so powerful or so other that he distances himself yeah. from the creation needs any intermediaries or other means by which to manifest himself. But this is God if you will uh, putting his nose in the dirt. You know, um, actually coming down and walking and talking with us in order that we might uh, appreciate um, the initiative that he undertakes to bring us back to himself. It's a fantastic story. That's why Christmas is a lovely part of the year. I want to thank both of you for for coming in and being a part of our day here at, at the table and helping us think through the virgin birth and the parallels and the way in which it works. Thank you all very much for being a part of the show. You're welcome.
2: Thanks for hosting us.
1: And we're glad that you could be a part of The Table and hope you'll be back again with us soon.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.